Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord today. Hopefully all of you are awake uh, and ready uh, since we've lost an hour of sleep. Maybe some folks will be coming here uh, in, a, in a few minutes as they've forgotten that it's uh, daylight savings time. Uh, but, you know, it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning and uh, hopefully the Lord and his spirit will keep us attentive and awake to his uh, word. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 25, uh, we've been talking about spiritual gifts for several weeks now, uh, and uh, it occurred to me this morning in the parking lot that we haven't actually addressed the issue of whether or not uh, we think that uh, these spiritual gifts uh, that we've been talking about, especially sort of prophecy and tongues, whether or not we think that they continue or not. And since I haven't planned for this, we're just going to go off the cuff, and I figured this would be the best place to put it, since it doesn't really fit with the rest of my sermon. So uh, what we believe is that um, here in verse, uh, in chapter 13, it says that prophecies will pass away, and for tongues they will cease. And so we take that as we at face value, that we um, in the Reformed tradition would believe that these particular spiritual gifts um, that were for the uh, establishment of the church have passed away, that they have ceased to uh, function, and that we don't see them in sort of the normal course of our spiritual lives today. Why? Because the scriptures are both sufficient and, well, they're sufficient for us, and they are the revelation to us, and so they are God's word and his prophecy to us, and so we don't need any new sort of special revelation. Um, Now, that being said, all of the theologians that are cessationists, the people that think that these gifts don't continue, all of them are sort of semi-cessationists because all of them would totally affirm that whatever the Lord wants to do, he can totally do. And so if he wants to, you know, prophesy, great. I mean, as long as it's consonant and coherent with what we find in the scripture, the Lord can do whatever he wants. Um, And so we see a lot of testimony, especially in the mission field, where the gospel goes for the first time, we see crazy things happen. Um, People are healed. Uh, uh, These sort of gifts that we haven't seen in in a long, long time sort of seem to pop up and and crazy things happen. Those sort of testimonies come from all over the world. And so for those of us that are cessationists, we're like, well, we don't normally see this, but the Lord can do whatever he would like to do. And we sort of see uh, in Acts a lot of times where the gospel goes for the first time, we see these sort of amazing gifts of the Spirit coming to sort of verify and um, prove that the gospel, the word ministry that these uh, miraculous signs go with is true. And so um, these signs really attest to the word that it goes with. And so that's what we believe uh, in the Reformed tradition about whether or not these sort of gifts keep going. But let's turn our attention this morning to actually the, the, the passage that's before us. So chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. Please uh, uh, follow along and pay attention, for this is the word of the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he, understand, he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, 
but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, uh, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I, am, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray also with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For if you may be giving thanks well, uh, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. Even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if, you, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let us pray. Father God, you are mighty and powerful, and you are worthy of all praise. It is incomprehensible how great you are, and Lord, we are only the creature, and you are the creator. And because we are not only creatures, but rebellious creatures, we are in desperate need of you. We are in desperate need of your word of life. And so, Lord, you have spoken to us in your scriptures, and we ask that these words would become life to us, that they would be uh, transformed in the gospel um, as, uh, as words that transform us, that we would no longer be uh, conformed to our sinful nature, but that we would be conformed more to your son. And so, Lord, speak uh, to us now. Help us to listen and understand uh, your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to start ta uh, by talking about the difference between acclaim and impact. 
You know, we often talk about achievements and awards as a measure of somebody's impact, but recognition and impact, a claim and impact, don't always go together. So, for instance, this year's uh, big winner at the Oscars was the uh, critically acclaimed film The Shape of Water. Uh, it won four Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. And uh, quick show of hands, how many of you guys actually saw the movie The Shape of Water? So three, great. Movie buffs you are, okay? So three people. Uh, by contrast, anybody hazard a guess what the top grossing film was this year, this past year? Star Wars. Star Wars, The Last Jedi, okay? And many of you guys who, have, uh, who know me very well know my opinion of that, that, uh, that film, but that's neither here nor there. The Last Jedi grossed $620 million. The Shape of Water grossed only $58 million. And, you know, The Last Jedi was not nominated for any performance categories at the Oscars. It only was nominated for, like, sound mixing and visual effects and stuff like that. And so what, what can we conclude? Well, a whole ton more people saw The Last Jedi than... Uh, than The Shape of Water. Now, which one do you think is more culturally significant? And while, you know, The Last Jedi certainly spawned a ferocious debate amongst diehard fans like me and uh, others, it pales in comparison to the cultural moment that was provided by the, the recent Marvel superhero movie uh, released called Black Panther, okay? Um, and as a superhero movie, Black Panther, I don't really expect it to win a lot of sort of these critically acclaimed awards, like at the Oscars or the Golden Globes or whatever, okay? But no one can really dispute the impact that Black Panther has had on the culture today um, or on the cultural discussions that are centered around race and sort of the obligation of the wealthy uh, to the oppressed masses or to the impoverished or whatever. Okay, and so regardless of your opinion of Black Panther's message, a lot of people have seen the movie, and even those who haven't seen it are being forced to at least interact with it as you are right now, right? Um, <laughs> so that brings me to my next question. If no one watches a movie, does the movie matter at all, even if it wins a bunch of awards? And I think the answer is generally no. If no one sees it, it has no impact and your movie doesn't matter. And so this is the difference between acclaim and impact that Paul is trying to point out to the Corinthian church in this passage. The Corinthians were focused on acclaim. They wanted to be outwardly impressive. And this is clear if you go back to read the previous chapters in this letter. The Corinthians were self-centered, prideful, and glory-seeking. They were far more concerned about looking good and getting ahead than actually embodying the gospel. But Paul has a different focus. His overarching concern is impact, the impact of the gospel upon people so that it transforms them. The impact of the gospel is that it sanctifies them, that they would become more like Christ. And as we work our way through the passage uh, to try and see how Paul makes this point, I think it'll be best to organize our thoughts around a series of questions. Whenever there's a topic like this, um, like prophecy in tongues that's so foreign to us, 
uh, it will always spawn a whole host of questions, as we have already seen. And so let's take those questions head on and ask a few of our own to understand and apply this passage. Uh, so then we're going to ask the question, uh, first we're going to ask, uh, we're going to define our terms by asking what the gifts of tongues and prophecies actually are in this passage. Then we're going to ask the question, why does Paul say that he would rather the Corinthians prophesy rather than speak in tongues? Uh, this question of what makes prophecy more desire, desirable than tongues. And lastly, we're going to ask, why does Paul have to say this to the Corinthians in the first place? Uh, hopefully, we'll blitz through defining our terms um, and the questions about the superiority of prophecy over tongues to spend most of our time on that last question, which I think will be instructive to us. So, what are the gifts of tongues and prophecy? If you look in your uh, sermon outline, I've included a table that will help keep us uh, keep straight what Paul is saying about these gifts. And so what can we glean about the gift of tongues from this passage? Well, in verse 2, we learn uh, that the gift of tongues is a prayer language. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. And since this is a language directed toward God and not toward men, we are, by definition, dealing with a private prayer language. And we find another thing out in, the, in verse 2. The second half of it tells us that what is being spoken is an unknown language to both the speaker and the hearer. It says, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Along with the fact that no one understands uh, what is being uttered, there is a corresponding spiritual gift of interpretation. Verse 13 says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. And verse 16 highlights this need for interpretation. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? And from that same verse, we can see that the gift of tongues was primarily used to praise God. The Spirit praise, sings praise in verse 15, and verse 16 says that you are giving thanks. And so lastly, we can learn that, uh, pro and probably most importantly for the Corinthians, uh, the, the gift of tongues builds up the speaker only. Verse 4 is crystal clear about this. The one who speaks in tongues builds himself up. And the gift of prophecy, on the other hand, is sort of like the inverse of tongues. Look at verse 3 with me. Prophecy is not spoken. Uh, prophecy is spoken, sorry. Prophecy is spoken, not in a private prayer to God, but as a corporate word to men. It's a known language to both the speaker and the hearer, and so it needs no interpretation. It's a word not of praise of the Lord, but of upbuilding, uh, encouragement, and consolation. But what are they building up? They're building up the church, which is the body of Christ. And so we see not a word of praise, but an act of praise as the speaker speaks and through his word points the Lord. And this builds everyone up. And so we're not narrowly talking about predicting future events, which is the sort of common use of the word of prophesy. Rather, what's in view is the office of the prophet by which God speaks to his people. And so the words that came to the prophets were generally not about the future, actually, but about the present, words of encouragement, discipline, judgment, and the like. So, now that we've defined our terms, 
we need to deal with the fact that Paul seems to spend quite a bit of time explaining why he thinks the Corinthians are best served pursuing the gift of prophecy rather than the gift of tongues. So why is the gift of prophecy better than the gift of tongues? Verse 5 gives us Paul's rationale. I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. For Paul, the overriding concern is, again, the building up of the church. And the issue is intelligibility. No one will learn anything about the gospel if they cannot understand what is going on. And so the gift of tongues is not particularly helpful in the building up of the church. Remember, Paul has explicitly said that the gift of tongues only builds up the speaker and not anyone else. And since prophecy is done in a way that everybody understands the word from the Lord, it is better for the group. It's pretty simple and straightforward. Quick aside here. Uh, It's important to note that Paul is not saying that tongues are bad. Uh, It'd be wrong to say that Paul is demeaning the value of tongues. He isn't. In fact, in verse 5, he explicitly commends the practice of speaking in tongues. He wished that all of them spoke in tongues. And furthermore, in verse 18, he goes so far uh, as to thank God that he speaks in tongues more than the Corinthian church. And so how how are we to understand the comparison that is taking place. It might be best to say that Paul isn't making a good versus bad comparison, but rather a good versus better comparison. It isn't a bad thing to pursue the gift of tongues. It was a gift of the Holy Spirit and one for building up the faith. And that's not bad. But when it comes to striving for manifestations of the Spirit, as verse 12 puts it, it's better to desire the gifts that not only build up yourself, but also build up others. And how much better is it to build up the rest of the body than only yourself? Paul would rather prophesy just five words and, speak, and teach using only five words than speak 10,000 words in a tongue. And so it's radically better to build up the church rather than to sort of hog the spotlight, so to speak. And that brings us to the question of why Paul needs to say this to the Corinthians, this last question, and we've sort of blown through really quickly. The problem that Paul's addressing is that it's clear that the Corinthians were far more interested in the unintelligible, uninterpreted tongues. I think that we have to sort of back up and take a wider view of the context of this passage in order to understand just how far this error goes. Paul has spent literally the last two chapters, plus this one, uh, having to tell the Corinthians that the different spiritual gifts are equally vital to the health of the church. It seems like the Corinthians have a completely different paradigm, a completely different approach to spiritual gifts than Paul does. And so the Corinthians approach spiritual gifts like talents on a basketball uh, court. Some gifts are flashier and seemingly more important than others. Uh, For instance, the ability to dunk will get you a lot more attention than the ability to block out for a rebound or screen for your teammate or be a pest on defense. And so for some, uh, the goal is not so much to do whatever you can to impact the game and win, but to get as much attention as possible, to sort of get as many highlight reels as possible. And that selfishness is at the core of the Corinthians' issues. You see, when you begin to compare gifts, you begin to compare, uh, when you begin to 
compare gifts, you begin to compare the gifts that you have against the gifts that somebody else has. And when you do that, the shift focuses, uh, shift, the focus shifts from what, uh, doing what's best for the body uh, the, to doing what's best for your own advancement. And we saw this back in chapter 12 a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Silvernail reminded us that there were two major errors when it came to comparing gifts. You were either jealous of somebody else's gifts, the, like the hand desiring to be the foot or the foot desiring to be the eye, that kind of thing. Or you thought that their gifts was worthless. Ah, I don't need that hand. Uh, I'm the eye. I don't need the hand or the feet. Who cares about them? They're just sort of on the ground and they sort of get dirty and grungy and like, we don't need them, right? And that's what's what's happening here in chapter 14. They're poo-pooing the gift of prophecy. That's what the Corinthians are doing. It's far less impressive and eye-opening than sort of speaking a strange language in an ecstatic spiritual experience. And so they're doing actually both mistakes of chapter 12. They're uh, they're pursuing the gift of tongues to the exclusion of the gift of prophecy. And so with their attitude towards prophecy, they demean the gift. And with the pursuit of tongues, uh, they are jealous of those already with the gift. And so do you see how this can be detrimental to the mission of the church? Gifts that are misused for selfish purposes tear down and divide the church. They damage the witness of the church and divide the body. The Corinthians are certainly not doing what verse 1 commands them to do, which is to pursue love. But ultimately, that's what this boils down to. There's a reason why chapter 13 comes before chapter 14. When you're competing against your brother and sister in Christ for approval and praise, it's very hard to love them. They are actually obstacles in your path to what you truly desire, which is for everyone to marvel at how great you are. Look at me. Look at this particular gift that makes me so special. And if they're looking at somebody else, they're not looking at me, and so I have to do something about that. Unless you think that this is only for the Corinthians, we do the same thing. Most of us would want to be well thought of by our Christian brothers and sisters. And so we speak in sort of Christian phrases and use big theological terms and ideas to sort of showcase our Christianness, just how awesome we are in our Christianness. But really, isn't that just a different language that excludes Christians that don't know the lingo? And non-Christians have no chance to understand what is being said. And so, in fact, when we do this, when we speak in theological, big theological terms and big theological jargon, what we're doing is we're doing the exact same thing that the Corinthians are. We're speaking in a tongue that nobody can understand. And we're doing so at the expense of those less versed in the lingo. It divides the body of Christ from the people that are theologically learned to the people and the people that are theologically unlearned. And what about uh, hospitality? You know, we at, in this church are hospitable people. It's one of the things that we think we do well. But when we only invite over the cool people, the people that we're comfortable with, are we not doing so for the sake of our reputation and for our own comfort, that we're literally dividing the church? How does that show forth the gospel to the brothers and sisters in Christ who think of themselves as a mess? 
In short, it doesn't. We are not only excluding those for whom Christ has died, but we are also damaging the credibility of the gospel to them. For if we can't even love our brothers and sisters in Christ who sort of drive us a little crazy, if we can't do that well, how can we love our non-Christian neighbors well? (laughs) Now you might be thinking, Frank, you're being really hard on the Corinthians and you're being really hard on us. I mean, couldn't they just be speaking tongues uh, to sort of showcase the fact that the Lord is with them, that they're filled with the Spirit, and so what a great testimony that is? And wouldn't sort of the power of the Lord being made manifest in this crazy sort of ecstatic utterance be an attractive thing to other Christians and to to non-Christians? Isn't the miracle of speaking in tongues this sort of evangelistic tool? Well, unfortunately for that line of thinking, Paul anticipates this excuse. In Acts 2, uh, the gift of tongues was used to showcase God's redemptive work as the curse of Babel was reversed. But there the utterances were heard um, uh, by the hearers in their native tongues. And so the, the gifts of tongues were interpreted and functioned like prophecy. And so Paul uses Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12 to put this to rest, right? And he, Paul reminds the Corinthians that uninterpreted tongues are actually a judgment. The quote here refers to the coming invasion by Assyria uh, who will be speaking strange tongues to the Israelites, to God's people. And so if you practice the gift of tongues in front of others and do not, uh, do not interpret, it actually reverts from a sign of redemption like it is in Acts 2 to a sign of judgment because God, the word of God doesn't actually go to them in an intelligible way. It's a judgment that God no longer speaks to them in a way that they can understand. And so it's no wonder that we get just a verse later in verse uh, 23 that outsiders, that unbelievers will hear these strange utterances and just reject them out of hand as uh, us being out of our minds. And so we return to the same issue. We are like the Corinthians, looking to feed our own egos and position. We are competing to come out on top as we compare ourselves to others. But how does the gospel change this? Because there has to be hope in the gospel, for transformation. How do, we, uh, do, how do we, as verse 20 puts it, not be children in our, in our thinking? How do we become spiritually mature? And the answer comes in understanding what the gospel calls us to do and how it empowers us to do it. Ephesians 4, 15, and 16 gives us the answer. Speaking the truth in love, which is what we are to, called to do, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so the Lord Jesus has composed the church exactly the way it needs to be composed. It has arranged each member of the body in its place to do what it it was ordained to do. And the question that is before us is whether or not we trust the Lord to get our place in the body right. Do we trust that we've been given everything that we need to serve the kingdom? Are we content with playing the role that we've been given, or are we going to be unsatisfied? And the gospel relieves us of this discontentment. For what do we have in Christ? We have everything that we need. We have far more than what we need, in fact. 
For we have Christ himself, and in him every spiritual blessing, as Ephesians 1 tells us. And we are secure in the fact that we are precious in his sight because, we are, because he has proved it at the cross. When I talk to the, the youth, I, I often ask them, what proof do you need that Christ loves you? Where do you go? And we need to go no, no further than the cross. For it is there that we can see that the Lord has paid a precious price for us. A price no less than his son. Don't you see the gospel destroys this need for competition. The need to come out on top. The need to look impressive. Why? Because we already have the approval of the one, uh, the one person whose opinion matters. We don't need to find our identity in, by comparing ourselves to others, but we find it in Christ. And as we remind each other of that truth, we build each other up in contentment and service. John 13, 35 says that everyone uh, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so it comes back to that first verse, pursue love. A love that abides and perseveres in the face, of, even in the face of sin. What a testimony it is to truly be for one another, to not be jealous and to not demean, to actually persevere when people sin against you. And uh, those words of truth and of grace that come from the mouth of the Lord to us through the scripture are convicting. They're convicting not only to the non-believer who overhears them and whose sin is exposed as we see at the end of this passage, but also to the believer who is called to turn evermore from his sin and onto Christ. And together we will confess, both with non-Christians and Christians in the last day, we will, t- we will confess and we will worship the Lord. Why? Because his presence is undeniably among us. So let me close with confessing how this passage has convicted me. You know, by every, almost every measure, uh, my secondary education was a complete and utter success. When I was in middle school and high school, I was a high achiever. Um, I won a ton of awards at my middle school uh, award night, even some awards that I didn't know that I was up for. Uh, and this sort of continued in high school. I was a solid performer in marching band and choir. I was involved in a slew of honor societies and volunteer work and academic teams. I was a straight-A student for much of my high school career and consistently viewed as the smart one in my classes. No surprise there, right? I aspired to go to an Ivy League school, and I, uh, behold, I attended and graduated from uh, Princeton University. I've been very blessed. and I have achieved uh, what many students and their parents only dream of. Now, why am I telling you all of this? I'm not telling you to puff up my ego or to um, you know, tell you of all my acclaim and my accolades. I want you to know what drove me in that time of my life. What drove me to achieve all of these things? Was it a desire to be well-equipped to serve my community and be an uplifting force in society? Nope. Oh, what about a desire to be equipped to do the ministry of the Lord? Since I'm a pastor now, maybe that was something that, that I, I, would, I aspired to do? Nope. Well, how about just trying to be a well-rounded individual so that I could be a contributing member to society? No. What drove me back in middle school and high school was plain and simple competition. 
I was certainly competing with my classmates, but really the one that I was competing with was my older brother. I wanted to be better than him. I wanted to one-up him in everything. Video games, sports, academics. I participated in all the things that he did, and I tried to do even some of the things that he didn't do. I wanted to have a more impressive resume coming out of high school, and I wanted to go to a better school than he did. I wanted to do better, to be better, and to be recognized as such. Thank God that I never, never achieved that particular goal. I'd probably be even more prideful than I am today. But it was also really exhausting. Why? Because I was not chasing after the Lord. I was not chasing after the building up of the body of Christ. I was chasing after an idol, an idol of acclaim, an idol of my gift, really, in fact, right? That I really cared more about the gift than the gift giver. And I completely missed the point. You know, a couple of sermons that I gave, a couple of sermons back, um, I said that I had sort of played ultimate Frisbee and I had sort of dominated on the, on the ultimate Frisbee field and I just completely missed the point of being at a church retreat, right? And again, here, I'm missing the point. Why do we go to school? Why do we equip ourselves? We don't just sort of indiscriminately equip ourselves saying, oh, I, I want to have this great and awesome toolbox that I can just deal with any situation that comes before me. No, we train so that we might be useful. That we might do something with our skills. That we can, in fact, serve. That wasn't my goal at all. My goal was to stand supreme over everyone so that they could see how awesome I was. I didn't care if I was accumulating useful skills. I just wanted the acclaim, the attention, and the glory. And to be honest, this competition, this desire to be number one is still alive and well in me. And I bet it's alive and well in you. It drives me to always want to be right, to have to win every conversation. It drives me to point out other people's mistakes. It drives me to compare my ministry against other youth ministries and other churches. Can you tell that this series on 1 Corinthians is really laying bare the sort of pride in all of its ugliness? Does any of this sound familiar? Because we live in a county that pressures its students to perform and compete at a high level. It pressures all of you to be well-rounded individuals, to have it all together, to have the big house, the two-car garage, the two-and-a-half kids, the white picket fence, maybe a pet, maybe not, who knows, okay? But are you in it for the gift giver to serve? Or are you in it just so that you can be recognized as an awesome individual? This passage today calls you and me to repent for the gifts that you have been given, your time, your money, your talents, your spiritual gifts, they've not been given for your glory, but for his. Let's pray. Father God, we come to this passage uh, learning a lot about what 
the gift of tongues and prophecy are, even though we don't really have a lot of experience with them. We come uh, a whole jumble of wanting our own glories and our own acclaim. But Lord, we ask that your gospel would transform us, that we be turned from uh, needing to build up our own kingdom. For Lord, we have been made secure in your kingdom by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, would that glorious truth change us and turn us from ourselves towards others for the building up of your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.